Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. It's so easy to move into those angry, punishing, scary ways that I was certainly raised that way. Fear and shame does not inspire good decisions later in life. In the short term, it may make them toe the line, but as soon as they reach adolescence and into adulthood, that will lead them to make the worst choices possible, not only ones that put their lives at risk, but put their hearts at risk. Hey, everybody, subscribe on iTunes, itunes.com backslash Atomic Moms. Woohoo! Today, we have a very, very special interview. It is with Dr. Laura Berman. She has written many books, but today we will be talking to her about quantum love. Use your body's atomic energy to create the relationship you desire. And because she is uh, such a BFD, she's such a big deal, um, I'm going to ask Bridget now to read her long bio. Okay. Laura Berman, PhD, is a world-renowned sex and relationship educator and therapist, popular TV, radio, and internet host, New York Times bestselling author, and assistant clinical professor of OBGYN and psychiatry at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. Side note, that's where I went. Go cats. Oh, I okay. <laughs> Considered a thought leader in her field, Dr. Berman has helped countless couples build stronger relationships, improve their sex lives, and achieve a heightened level of intimacy through her TV and radio shows, books, columns, and website, along with her private practice based in Chicago. Dr. Berman is a New York Times bestselling author of many books on sexual health and pleasure, a weekly columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, and host of the radio program Uncovered with Dr. Laura Berman. She's appeared on Fox News, CNN, and The Today Show, as well as The New York Times, USA Today, and every major woman's magazine. And Atomic Moms. And Atomic Moms. Dr. Berman serves on the advisory board for The Dr. Oz Show and is a regular guest on The Steve Harvey Show. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, she was also Oprah's relationship expert. Yes. For the run of her show. And uh, we're big fans. This book is amazing. I can't wait for you guys to read it. Uh, I listened to it on Audible, um, and I actually had it at a speed of like 1.5 and occasionally a speed of 2, which I would not recommend, although it did make me run faster on the treadmill. <laughs> But I am you all harnessed your body's atomic energy. I did <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm already finding her tools so helpful. She talks about how she in the book. She talks about how she had a client um, who couldn't stand her stepson, like just hated his guts. And uh, Dr. Berman asked her to keep a journal where she would just list five things that she liked about her stepson. And at first, it was hard for the the stepmom to do this, um, but she committed to it. And then it was amazing how their relationship shifted because of just being able to recognize the good in someone else and putting your attention on that rather than on everything that bugs you. Um, And she also talks about having a 30-second hug with your partner. So I did that. I, like, Adam came home last night, and I, like, gave him this big hug, and I, like, wouldn't let go. And it was awkward for a moment, but then he melted into it. And it was so sweet. And so she has all these really practical tools along with um, this huge idea that, you know, we're all energy and that we're our feelings are energy and that we're all connected and you know, not only is this helpful in our love life, but also in our love lives with our children. That wasn't creepy the way I just said no. that, was it? Mm-mm. I have a love life with Sabrina. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes I call my daughter my tiny girlfriend, but I don't mean it romantically. <laughs> um, how are you feeling, Bridget? 
I'm good. You mean, I don't think I've said on here that no, I'm pregnant. No, let's, let's announce so, it. So um, I'm almost 30. Well, let's see. It's after Thanksgiving here. Um, so I'm like 32 weeks pregnant, and I'm having a boy this time at the end of January. So I'm feeling pretty good. This one has been harder than the first pregnancy. Nothing major, thank goodness, but just, as my sister said, more hassles. Yeah, like what? Just doctor's appointments? I had morning sickness this time. I've had um, chronic nosebleeds, which is an unfortunate, but turns out not uncommon. Pregnancy <laughs> is really embarrassing to imagine a pregnant woman like it's, running to the bathroom horrible. because there's blood it's coming out of her nose. Gory. It's very yeah. gory. They, luckily, they've almost all been in the early morning. They've woken me up. It's But it's very strange. I was not a nosebleedy kid, so it's like yeah. extra weird. Adam gets them, and yeah. I'm so turned off by it. It's very, I was about to say, it's very yucky. That's how you know I spend a lot of time with an almost three-year-old. But Ali Wong, the comedian who's very funny, when she gets excited, she gets them. <laughs> Which I read in the New Yorker profile. I was like, well, that's much worse. So, like, any kind of excitement. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I'm not having a nosebleed because I'm excited. But I'm excited. I'm feeling pretty good. My face is already filled out. It hasn't. You oh, cannot tell you're pregnant. No one knows. No well, I'll take a knows. picture of us. You can't tell. Except um, for your cute belly. I have giant stomach. I have a hernia. But everything's fine. You know? Yeah. He's great yeah. so far. So that's good. I think it's interesting that you have morning sickness because isn't it usually supposed to be a girl thing? Yeah, but this is like, this is my, yes, supposedly. But I didn't have any with my daughter and I've had it this time. And this is also like people who are like, oh, you know, the old wives tales, like, oh, you look the same. It must be a boy, which before Mm. people would be like, oh, the way you're carrying, it's a boy. And I was like, no, it's a girl, you know, same thing. So people just have their theories. (laughs) <laughs> People are full of theories. And like gender's a construct, you guys. Yeah, totally. But I mean, he does have male sex organs, so <laughs> I'm calling him a boy. He's a boy. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess let's call Dr. Berman. Yeah, let's do it in Chi-Town. We'll be right back. I just want to say thank you so much for writing this book. I'm... Uh, kind of super aggravated with you that you didn't write it 10 years ago because Why? <laughs> I spent about a decade <laughs> trying to figure this out for myself. And uh, uh, and now I'm just going to give everyone this book. Uh, oh, good. I mean, will you first of all tell us um, a little bit about it and, um, you know, the personal experiences that led to you writing it? Sure. Um, This book, you know, I've written eight of them, eight books. This one by far um, is my favorite. And it's not one that I ever imagined in a million years, 15 years ago, I would write. Um, And a lot of people thought I was crazy in my family. And, you know, they're like, we were writing about what? Um, But it's, the truth is, so Quantum Love is the title of the book, and it's a very personal book for me because it was inspired um, not only by my work, which is, you know, as a sex, love, and relationship therapist for the past 25 years, but um, which is the place from which all my other books were written. Um, this was really written from my life as well because... What happened is I went through a series of what I like to call AFGEs, another freaking growth experience after another. You know how we have those, some people call it a dark night of the soul. Some people call it a crisis. You know, you I had, had a couple three, of them. man. You had three <laughs> big ones. 
Yeah, I had a lot going on. And the main issue, the main ones were my mother died um, relatively suddenly, pretty suddenly. Um, and she was, I mean, I know it's always hard for a mother to ju- to die, but she was like my soul twin. And we were extremely close and connected. And it was devastating to me to lose her. And then uh, within a year, I had, she died of cancer, of breast cancer, and that came back. And then within a year, I die. I die. Gosh, that's a Freudian slip, right? Huh. Uh, I guess a part of me did die and was reborn. Yeah. But, but um, the, within a year, uh, I had breast cancer in the same breast she had it in. Whoa. Um, and then I uh, also had to just stop my life as a result of that because what it turned out that I had this really unusual and very aggressive situation because um, my cancer was HER2 positive, Mm. which is a very aggressive kind of cancer. And it requires a certain kind of protein. You know, seven years ago, if you had this, you were basically a goner. But now, thank goodness, they have treatment for it. But it it was weird to see in in a woman with my medical history and without the other risk factors that, you know, that I was missing. So, um, so I really had to stop my life to figure all of that out and to go through the treatment. And around the same time, just coincidentally, or the universe having my back, um, my projects that I was doing with Oprah, at the time I was doing her show regularly as her sex and love expert, and that her show came to an end around the same time. My radio show that I've been doing for three years on her uh, XM Sirius radio station came to an end as well as they were kind of deciding what they were going to do next in own and everything else. And so um, everything just sort of stopped <laughs> in my life. And my family started to really unravel, especially my kids in the wake of not only their grandmother dying, but now me having the same kind of cancer. And so they were all going through their own traumas and tribulations and acting out and difficulties in school. So, And I'm sure fiddle. also with your son, um, your son had childhood leukemia. So all of that yes. must have come back uh, visiting the hospital. He was and totally post-traumatic stress. Yeah. You know, he was definitely, uh, and he was already going through a hard time in general, with some of the long-term neurologic side effects, which they now understand a lot more about uh, from the cancer treatment that he has such a young child. So there was a lot going on in my house, and I really felt um, helpless. All my usual tools and tricks, you know, taking them to the shrink, (laughs) you know, doing my usual behavioral modification, taking all the things that you guys talk about, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. you know, on the parenting techniques and the tools and you know here I am as a therapist and I'd always been able to manage all this stuff and and nothing was working and so because of that I had to start looking more deeply and also I had the time to look more deeply so thanks to that AF those AFTEs I really ended up stumbling upon um, a path that I never imagined, and uh, that's what led me to quantum love, which is basically this amazing ability that we all have to use our body's energy to create the relationships and the reality we desire. And so as I was digging around and I came back to the law of attraction and the secret, which I'd read many, many years prior, 
um, I really started to question it, like, how does this really work? And I started to do more and more research, and I discovered some of the research that was going on in quantum physics that really is the science behind the law of attraction. And there's real science there that it's fascinating. And that captured my imagination. And as I started to try to create techniques using this new knowledge to address the issues within my own family, I was really amazed at how well it worked. And then I started, once I got back to work and started seeing patients again, I started practicing and teaching it with my clients. And then was amazed at how well that was working. And so that's when I knew I was onto something. And that's what led to Quantum Lab. We talk on the show about energy a lot. And this idea, especially with sleep training our children, um, that, you know, that the energy that we are not separated by a door. So when our daughter's crying, if we're, uh, we have had the expert Jennifer Waldberger on, and she basically says, you know, mm-hmm. if you are able to calm yourself, if you are able to energetically center yourself, be grounded, that that can only help your child calm down. And that she's had experiences Absolutely. where a mother, the second, you know, the door is shut, the baby's crying, and if the mother can sit there and quietly just send love to her baby, that the baby will quiet. And it's, yeah. it's amazing, especially with our children just it's proof to me that this is true. I mean, my husband jokes with me about, like, he's like, I don't believe in energy. And I'm like, well, I, I, I don't even know how to deal with you. <laughs> you're like, let me tell you how you're making me feel right now. Exactly. This is affecting well, my energy. My husband, I call second root chakra because he's so pragmatic and every, everything is evidence-based and mm-hmm. he doubts everything. But he's totally become a believer because he's seen what I can do. And he knows that I do it to him sometimes. And I do it, you know, it's like a Jedi mind trick for your relationship. Um, But basically what you're talking about is from a quantum physics standpoint is what they call quantum entanglement or entrainment. Because the truth is when those people with whom we have that very close connection, our loved ones, our partners, our children, Mm -hmm. We are uh, quantumly entangled. Our atoms are entangled together. So we're all made at our core. We are all just pure energy, atomic energy. We're atoms, right? Our atoms are vibrating. That's really what we really are. And um, and what happens when two atoms are entangled, right? Let's just say we were looking at the two atoms. They're spinning at exactly the same uh, rate, speed, angle, everything. And if I were to take one of those atoms, and go to China with it and start spinning it in the opposite direction. The one back here with you would start spinning in the opposite direction at the same moment. Because once you're entangled, you remain that way no matter how far apart you are. And what we found is that this happens. uh, We're all like human tuning forks. You know how you strike one tuning fork and the other tuning fork matches it. We are always matching each other's energy unconsciously. And it really made sense to me when I looked at some of the neurologic research out there and understand, you know, how, I was trying to understand how come all of this is happening beyond our conscious awareness mm-hmm. and what I, for most of us. And what I learned is that we take in 40 billion bits of information every millisecond into our brains, but we only consciously process 2,000 of them. So there's this whole communication going on beyond our awareness that we can't necessarily tune into until we start to discover these things and use them 
intentionally. Because what typically happens, women already know this, moms certainly know this. I mean, the second a kid gets in my car, I know how their day went. Mm. I know how they feel. I know if they're upset, not even looking at their face. I can just mm-hmm. feel it, you know, or when you come into the house and you know your partner's in a bad mood, like they're, women especially are very good at this because, and, and mothers even more because going through the gestation and birthing process, certainly, but even just nursing, nurturing a young child, the way it changes your brain is that there's a lot more communication between the left and right hemispheres. And so we're much more able to um, utilize these techniques more quickly and successfully sometimes than even men can who don't have that advantage of the communication that we do between our two hemispheres. So it actually is something that we can access really easily once we start to. And it really just means that when you move your body, your emotions literally set the energetic frequency of your body. So your body is always changing vibrations and the people around you are always matching it and you're always matching theirs. I I, I love that on Steve Harvey's show, you said, be responsible for the energy that you walk into the room with. And I've I've gotten much better at that. (laughs) I can, I can, um, I can ground myself or, or I can use some of the techniques in your book. Like, I love how you say, you know, what way is this experience for me? I had an an experience with that earlier this week where my daughter is, we were in New York for a week and now she's sick for a week. And I was like, I got to. My, I was really in an ego-driven state of, like, how I mm-hmm. needed to r- read your book to let go of my ego. <laughs> I was like, my daughter <laughs> is sick, and it's ruining everything. And I was like, what is – okay, how is this for me? Okay, well, I don't get to work as hard on the podcast, but it's been months since I've been able to, like, go on a walk with Sabrina and, like, make lunch mm-hmm. with her because usually – We'll go on errands or we'll have play dates or we'll do other stuff. But because she's sick and has to stay home, we can have like these quiet moments that we haven't been able to have. Yeah. And that actually I'm practicing what you're preaching rather than just like taking notes on it. And that's how it um, – the experience is for that's me. That's how it sinks in. And the other thing to remember, and I do talk about this a lot, is that there's nothing wrong – with ego. I love how one of my favorite authors is Anita Morjani. She wrote her first book was Dying to Be Me. It's awesome. And she just wrote a new book. Um, something I can't remember the title. It's something like What If Heaven Is Here and Now. It's about how really she believes that we create our own heaven and hell now, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, one, of the way, one of the metaphors she used, which I absolutely love, is she talks about how when we're born, you know, we come in, uh, and I talk about this too in the book, we come in as these pure, you know, unadulterated love beings. And then it gets conditioned into us, because, partly because of our survival, we're, we're like even more than human tuning forks. We're human sonars when we're babies. We're picking up mm-hmm. everything from our environment and matching it because it's key to our survival. And there are all of these unconscious communications going on between caregivers and babies that sort of shift and change our frequency over time. But what she was saying is that we're born with, you know, if you imagine like two dials, one is ego and one is consciousness, and both are turned up to 10. But what happens to some of us 
is that our ego stays up. You know, your ego, meaning the reason your ego is good is that it, it teaches, you know, you, it determines your likes and dislikes. It helps you advocate for yourself. It alerts you when something's not serving you. It motivates you. It helps you re- see a separation, which is often necessary between yourself and someone else. It helps you not be a doormat. You know, there are lots of ways that your ego serves you. Your consciousness is your awareness of the bigger picture, your connection to that loving place inside you, your memory of who you really are as a divine being connected to that universal energy that connects everyone. And that starts to be turned down when parents, you know, tell their kids that imaginary friend isn't real or, uh, you know, diminishes them for some of their, what we would call magical thinking, which Anita Morjani argues is not really magical, mm. but real, you know, but that we sort of accidentally condition out this connection to their consciousness. So as we grow, and this I know happens to most of us who are now adults, you know, the, the consciousness knob is turned down lower than the ego knob. And the key yeah. is in having both turned all the way up, or at least even. That's amazing. Do you, how do I hold my energetic state regardless of negative surroundings, though? Like, I can ground myself. I can be mm-hmm. more aware when I'm by myself. I can turn things. Or I can flip it. I can walk into a room with great energy. But I am, I, I guess that there, I still have that child part of me that is so yeah. mirroring mm-hmm. the people around me that it's very easy for me to get sucked in. I mean, this has been like a constant theme in my life. Like, how yeah. do I have boundaries? Like, how do I create like a Glinda bubble so that I'm not sort of taking <laughs> on everybody else's? Oh, mine is, hi, Dr. Berman, it's Bridget. Mine is um, my anxiety shield is what I call it. <laughs> right. yeah, how do I get your anxiety shield? Can I order that on Amazon, Bridget? Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Um, you know, that's the work. To me, that's the work. And what I try to remember is that if you can stay in those states, 51% of the time, your life will drastically change for the better and your relationships with your kids will drastically change for the better. And um, it's really practice and the muscle, exercising that, that muscle of moving into what I call home frequency. Home frequency is our natural state. And so that's why I created the time love map in my book because it turns out that each emotional state we have has an energetic frequency. And it doesn't mean, like, hope frequency is really anything from optimism up. Optimism, hopefulness, courageousness, curiosity, love, forgiveness. You know, those kinds of emotional states are all high home frequency where more of what you want in your relationships are going to happen. And people will match you there. So if you want your partner to show up in a different way, if you want your kids to show up in a different way, if you want to calm your kids down, if you want them to move, if you want them to sleep, whatever it is, if you hold those states, everything in your life will go better. But the way that you get good at holding those states in the midst of things that make you want to constrict is two things to remember. One is that our energy is always expanding and constricting. So think of you know, the expansion as home frequency and the constriction is when you move into what I call ego frequency, where it's frustration, anger, guilt, shame, doubt, you know, those sorts of judgment, you know, those sorts of spaces are more constrictive, but they're okay. It's just about practicing how to move in and out of them. And actually on my website, I have some guided meditations. One in particular 
that shows you how to create a biofeedback system for yourself where it becomes really easy to shift back to home frequency when you're getting triggered. And basically what you do is, and I can, you know, I can walk you through this as we move along to show you just an example of how to move your body into home frequency, but you move your body into home frequency with your thoughts, and then you move to a thought that causes you constriction, doubt, anger, fear, frustration, and then you move your body back into home frequency, and then you move back to constriction, and then back to home frequency, and your body starts to kind of get used and your mind-body connection into moving into those different states, you learn to see what it feels like in your body. So now if I'm going into a meeting, I don't have to have all of these grounding thoughts to like move myself into home frequency. I can just move myself into that just automatically because my body knows how to do it now. I, I trained with uh, Peter Levine's Somatic Experiencing and... Mm-hmm. One of the best tools I got from that, I've only done the first year, it's like a three-year program, but uh, one of the best tools was this idea of like seeing things in blue and red when people are telling you about their experiences and this idea that if you go to, you start in blue, like someone's good experience, basically kind of what you're saying, I think, Mm because you start in blue and then they can dip into the red, but then Mm -hmm. you want them to go back to blue because otherwise Mm -hmm. they shut down. And you can't um, you can't integrate the experience, and I, no. and that has been so helpful for me because I'll you know also in interviews because you know that as an interviewer that the guest you know they'll share something but it's very clear energetically when they've shut off like you've gone too far and so you try yeah. to you go back into like what are the good experiences and I and I think that that's so healing and it's it's really cool that you found this other way of expressing that. Yeah. And what can I see? I mean, I use it in my, my relation with my husband. That's how I really knew I was onto something. And I, <laughs> and I share this in the book because he is so smart and such a good, like, I can't win an argument with him if I try. And he's, I, I mean, and I can win an argument with just about anyone, you know, maybe not about, you know, things I don't know about, but, <laughs> you know, relationship stuff or who was right, who was wrong, you sure. know, that kind of thing. I'm very good um, at winning that and, one. And when he was, uh, or I just convinced them they were wrong, you know. It's the same um, thing, isn't it, Dr. Berman? You and Bridget with your backgrounds in psychology, you guys are, yeah, you're, you're mind masters. Yeah. <laughs> i got to be careful with both of you. <laughs> so I, was, I remember I was sitting outside with him and he was mad at me about something. I did something to upset him. And he was lighting into me and I was like thinking to myself, you are so off base, you know. And I was doing what I would typically do, which is, listen to respond, not a healthy way to argue in your relationship, right? You got to really listen. Um, so I was already starting to think of my responses and how to tell him he was totally off base and whatever else. And instead I was like, oh yeah, wait, quantum love. And, you know, cause I've just been playing with this idea. And so I went into home frequency and I looked at him where normally I'd look at him with, even if I didn't show it with frustration or even disdain that he was being really, you know, if I was really judging him or in a judgmental place. But, um, but at that moment I looked at him and I was like, okay, this is another human being who's obviously hurting, who I love. And this is a blip in the spring, you know, in the whole picture of our relationship. And, um, you know, I just need to hold him with love and compassion and appreciation. And I was just thinking all those things in my head rather than thinking what my comeback is going to be. And this man who this never happens to ever lost his train of thought 
as I moved into home frequency and held it, he just naturally matched it, lost his angry train of thought, shoulders relaxed, sat down next to me. You know, I laid my head on his shoulder mm-hmm. and like we had the rest of the conversation, but it was, it was over in an instant. Mm-hmm. It was not a big deal anymore, you know, and I was, and that's when I knew that something real was happening. And then I started using it with my kids. Like even now, and it's fun to teach your kids about this. My kids know all about quantum love. And so, um, you know, I was in the swimming pool this summer with my uh, now 11 year old and we were like in this little hot tub and we were, and we were resting there. The bubble board on, but it was hot. And his, feet were touching my feet. We were both just kind of floating there. And I said, hey, what would happen if we both went into like home frequency right now? I wonder if the water would conduct it back and forth. And uh, we laid there like that. I don't know, it must have been 10 minutes. This, you know, ADD kid who never sits still, totally silent. And he could totally feel it. Like he talks about it all the time when I, when we were cuddling the other day and my husband came in and hopped on the bed with us and was cuddling and said, I'm going to go into home frequency, you know, and he just sort of, um, and so it really works. I can get him to go to sleep like that. I just have to move into an open heart state while I lie in bed with him and imagine no barrier between us, that we're not separate, and he will immediately match me. And that's what happens in the research. Our heart rate synchronizes, our uh, breathing synchronizes, our mood synchronizes. So when you're, instead of just matching everyone around you, when you start to consciously direct your energy and your perception to be in these higher frequency states, everything starts to change for the better. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because this last, or two weeks ago, I had sort of the negative version of this experience, Dr. Berman, which was mm-hmm. um, I went to, I'm expecting my second child, so I'm almost 30 weeks pregnant, and I went to a prenatal yoga class, Babies Welcome, and there Mm -hmm. were many, many babies there, and it was the day after the election, and the class was mostly made up of people who were exclusively who were unhappy with the result, and there Mm -hmm. was some discussion of it before class started and where everyone was at emotionally, and every baby started to cry in the class. Mm -hmm. And nobody, everyone was using their yoga voices, nobody, you know, and speaking sort of very abstractly about the experience. And there wasn't a baby there who was older than four months, but it was was really remarkable. And we all commented on it. Yeah, they're little barometers of what's going on. They are such little barometers. Okay, we're going to talk so much more about this, and we're also going to talk about sex when we come back after a word from our sponsor. I have come to notice that and really believe and find it to be true every time that when my kids start acting out, especially at home, Mm -hmm. They're reflecting something in the energy going on in me or my husband or between us that we're not even conscious of. Mm -hmm. And they are unbelievable in trainers. I mean, it's part of their survival. Kids have babies Mm -hmm. and children have to entrain in order to get you to stick around and take care of them. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to match you. And they're not selective about how they match you. (laughs) So if you're in a good place, they're going to match you there. If you're in a bad place, they're going to match you there. And part of the key to this is always questioning your stories and your assumptions and committing to 
really trying to always attach to a better feeling story. You know, women today, I like to call, you know, I consider myself a recovering alpha woman. I, I think know, I always say recovering today, perfectionist, and I got so excited yeah. when I saw that you wrote that. <laughs> yeah, because, and I'm also a recovering type, type A, a yeah. perfectionist as well. They often go hand in hand. Yeah, that um, alpha thing. But, you know, <laughs> this idea of the women of, of our generation who were raised by women who helped spearhead the women's movement and who really had that energy of no one controls you, always be independent, always control everything, you know, that we tend to be angry a lot. Um, and even if we don't show it, we're frustrated, we're tight, we're scared, we're tense. You know, and then we don't understand why everyone else around us isn't towing the line. Right. And we get scared that if we move into these better feeling beliefs, and this was a big hurdle for me, I write about this in the book as well, that that for me, I imagined that if I, especially with my husband, if I started holding a more positive belief about him or stories about him when in the past it would have been something that raised my hackles or I saw as unfair. You know, obviously I'm not talking about anything abusive or anything that really was diminishing to me or my power, but stupid things that I normally would have made a battle of wills, uh, unconsciously, of course. When I sort of surrender more to the better feeling thought, I started to realize that I was using that tightness and control as a way to protect myself from being controlled. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'll just, you know, I unconsciously thought I'll just control everything. That way no one will control me. But it wasn't creating the results I wanted. And as I started to surrender more and try on more better feeling beliefs, I started to think, well, maybe I'm kidding myself. Maybe I'm just coming up with ways to justify kowtowing to him. Maybe, you know, this really isn't. And what I realized is that I think most women of our generation, the only model of power we had was a masculine model, which is very much force, fix, manage, and control, you know. And there is another kind of power that is so much better than that, found in quantum love. Like, it is serious power. And I can get anyone in my house to do pretty much anything I want without saying a word. Oh, and, and this idea that it comes from control and the, and the, how we kind of put that on our spouses. So many mm-hmm. of our listeners are in the first year of motherhood and they mm-hmm. really want to murder their partner. Mm-hmm. And, uh-huh. and this is helpful. How, <laughs> what would mm-hmm. you say to that mom who's like, I just want to kill him or her? Like, I just... I, I'm putting it all on my spouse. Like I, everything yep. they do is frustrating me. Yeah. Can you give us some uh, spiritual <laughs> salve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that certainly if you're breastfeeding, but but for six months to a year, until six months to a year after you stop breastfeeding your body is in a hormonal hoedown mm. and <laughs> you know, there is a lot going on in there that is going to make you um, anxious, angry, irritable, sleep deprived, uh, low threshold for, for frustration. Add that with sleep deprivation. Add that to the anxiety, especially oh if you're a first time mom yeah. of like this 24 hour need machine that I have to keep safe and I have to take to the right. And then all of our type A stuff kicks in. And I was certainly this way with my first son. 
um, you know, every mommy and me group that I should go to and playing Beethoven so he could be good in math <laughs> and, you know, taking him to the Chinese language boo-boo bear class or whatever else. You know, I was like taking him to a million things a day and, you know, the sleep Nazi, my husband would call me. Um, because I was like so uptight to get everything right. Mm -hmm. And in reality, I think that comes from an extremely loving place because you're trying to do right by your kids, by your baby, you know, but it also is harmful. It's harmful to us and it's harmful to the connection. And what I have learned now, uh, you know, after 20 years of being a parent is that what they need more than anything else other than food, clothing, you know, shelter, bathing, health stuff, they need a deep connection to themselves and to you. They have to be resilient. They have to always know who they are inside and they have to feel valued and connected. And the way they get there is not with a million different to do's, you know, on your errand list or on your after school list and all the different after school scheduled stuff or preschool scheduled stuff. What they need is just relaxed play with you child-centered play, connection. And the reason that I think we get so angry at our husbands or fathers of the children is because they're not ha they don't, they weren't raised to be the perfectionists in this way that we were. And so they don't hold these things so tightly. And we get frustrated when they, for all intents and purposes, are not as uptight as we are. You know, mm -hmm. when they're not willing to do oh, I know. <laughs> to do less or when they're not willing. I mean, I came home once, and it can harm your relationship. I came home once when my uh, two, two, you know, my two youngest were babies and uh, my husband was giving them a bath. At, well, they weren't babies. I guess they were toddlers because I had just gotten them these new underwear. It was like when they were first starting to wear underwear and I hadn't washed them yet. So I wasn't planning on letting them use them. And I was the kind of mother, you know, you're going to put on these pajamas after they take the bath and you're going to bathe them in this lavender oil and massage them afterward. You know, I was doing all that stuff and I come home and my husband is giving them a bath in their new underwear. And I was like, okay, first of all, their underwear aren't washed yet. Second of all, like, why are you giving, you know, I started going to all that in my head. And then I was like, no, I want him to help. And now there's all this research coming out about kid, babies in particular who have a lot of time with their fathers are better academically, better self-esteem, better at math and science. It's really interesting. It, it affects their brain positively to spend that time. And so I decided in that moment, I'm no longer going to attach to a story about how that my way of parenting or dealing with the kids is better than his. And so what if they're taking a bath in their underwear? He'll take them off. I'll squeeze them out and put them in the laundry. <laughs> they'll still get their butts clean. Like, who cares? Right. And, um, and I just let it go. And I started to just let him do what he wanted to do with the kids, as long as it wasn't stupid, dangerous, right. stupid, you know? And everything got better. So I think part of the reason that men shy away from helping as much as we want them to help is because they're we terrified. are... They're terrified and everything they do is wrong. And then instead of appreciation, they get criticism when they're done. And that's not a big motivator. And the other thing is that they never lose unless they have low desire, but they rarely lose their desire. And so when that, that baby is born, they feel abandoned. 
because mm-hmm. now there's this 24-hour need machine between the two of you, and you're not as sexually available to them as you were before. And that's the means by which men achieve that emotional closeness that women get through kissing, cuddling, talking, being together. Men get through the physical act of sex. So when she's postpartum and not that into it, even six weeks out and nothing feels in the same place and she's too tired. And And she's overtouched. Yeah. And she's overtouched. You know, why can't he understand? He feels really shut out. It would be the equivalent of him refusing to hold your hand or cuddle you or kiss you or tell you he loved you. You know, it Mm. really feels painful. And so I think a lot of men shut down at that point and it's really hard to reconnect after that. Because who wants to have sex with that person? It's kind of a negative feedback loop. Yeah. And, And the irony is that for women, the number one inspiration in relationships for us to want to have sex is the emotional connection we feel to the guy we're going to have sex with. Mm -hmm. So if you've withheld sex and aren't available emotionally, you're not showing him any appreciation. He just experiences you as someone critical, angry, and shut down from him. He's going to withdraw from the relationship. And then as he withdraws from the relationship, you get angry at him even more. You feel less connected to him and that much less inspired to be sexual. So it's really important not to abandon that piece of the relationship, even when you're tired. And women will discover this as the kids get older, even when you're tired, even when you'd rather be watching Downton Abbey, even when you'd rather be, you know, doing something else on your to-do list, once you start to get busy with him... Um, you enjoy it and you think afterwards, oh, I should do this more often, you know? So it's just about really putting your attention on sourcing your desire from your, for your mate from a place other than spontaneous horniness, which goes away when you have a baby. Mm-hmm. It has to be from a place of wanting to nurture the relationship and love him and feel his love in return and, and continue to build that foundation, which is crucial to the success of that little baby's life. And I think when we let go of some of that control as well, that that helps. Because I know for me, it's also about not wanting to let my guard down. You know, mm-hmm. like I trust my husband fully and I adore him and we have a wonderful connection. But for me, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to get out of my type A drive. I'm afraid I won't be able to like pick myself back up again afterwards. Like it's it's yeah, hard to... But everything will go. Well, it's the equivalent of someone who won't let themselves feel their feelings mm, yeah. because they imagine that once I feel the sadness, I will drown in yeah, it. I'll never stop crying. It will overwhelm mm-hmm. me, which isn't true. And it's the same thing with control. We think if we let go of one thing, then everything in life is going to go to hell. And... You know, that's not true. And it's really important from a parenting perspective. I think that the best parents have enough type A to be relatively organized, but but that's where it ends because your kids are going to act in ways that mortify you. They're going to do things in school that, that like, it's hard to face. I mean, they're going to have learning issues or ADD issues or anxiety or frustrations or hard times, or they're not going to do well on their tests. Or, and if you get stuck in that system of believing that you're responsible for their success, rather than they are these little souls 
that have chosen you as their parents and a long time, you know, before you were born or when you were so you guys chose each other and you said, okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to come in and you're going to trigger me around X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. so I can work on being more open-hearted or I can work on being more forgiving because that's what I want to do in this life. And you're going to work on your thing and we're going to be comrades in that. And when you start to see your children as their own little beings that you are guiding and shepherding, rather than controlling out of fear of what might happen, then your relationship becomes really magical. And, it, and, and you have to hold things lightly and play a really long game with kids. And I used to have, you know, I, I talk about personas in my book, but I, I, and I think I talk, I do talk about this in the book. I had this very strong, she still comes out sometimes, very strong dire mama persona. So when my kids were really small, you know, one of them wasn't sharing a toy I was convinced that he was going to be selfish and no one was going to like him and he's going to become a Columbine shooter and addicted to drugs. You know, I could go all the way down the path because my oh, kid sure. didn't want to share his little toy with right. the other kid and the mommy and me group. And so those are all just stories that move us into ego frequency where recently my 12 year old did something really, that no, was my 11 year old to my 12 year old did something he, you know, had ADD, wasn't getting treated, didn't want to take the medication. You know, I was letting that go for a little bit because I certainly wasn't going to pill push on him, right? And he was doing some really impulsive things, and he ended up finding our phones are linked, so he has all of my pictures. He ended up finding a picture I'd forgotten to delete, which was of my, uh, my his older brother, the uh, 12-year-old sleeping on the bed with our dog. And I thought I had just gotten my son's face and dog, but there was a little mound of his cute little naked tushy in the picture. (laughs) And I couldn't bring myself to delete it, not knowing or not remembering that my other son had access to those pictures. And impulsively, when my youngest son was really mad at his brother and not in control of his impulses, he decided to text that picture to the entire soccer team at his school. Oh, my God. Okay? Big oh. deal. Big deal. So I then, I didn't even know about it until the principal called me <laughs> because oh, no. another parent on the soccer team had called him to tell him this was what was happening. Sure, there was a picture so, of a nude child circulating. Oh, my God. I mean, it, and it, it was so bad. And, and so I took some deep breaths, you know, calmed myself down. We were talking to Jackson, the youngest one. He did this about this. We took away his phone for the foreseeable future. We, uh, and, you know, we were angry. We were upset with him. We made him, you know, sit down with his brother and tell him what he had done and take responsibility for that. Um, we had him write an apology, you know, to his team. We did all of those things but it was not with anger. And I also said to him during that time, listen, um, we're really disappointed with the choice you made. We also know that when you have time to think about the choices you're making, you always make the right choice. And so we know this was one of those times where you just weren't thinking. And we also know that you are an amazing guy and you are so kind and so compassionate that you couldn't have been in your right mind if you, when you did this, because I know who you are and we love you and we're proud of you. And mm. even if we're disappointed, we remember who you are. Wow. We remember who you are. And I think that is so, so important because it's so easy to move into those 
you know, angry, punishing, scary ways that we were, I was certainly raised that way. Yeah. Yeah. And that shame is so low frequency and it's so toxic and it doesn't inspire good behavior. Fear and shame does not inspire good decisions later in life. In the short term, it may make them toe the line, but as soon as they reach adolescence and into adulthood, that will lead them to make the worst choices possible. Not only ones that put their lives at risk, put their hearts at risk. Yeah. I'm sure you have to go in a moment, but speaking of shame, I have definitely coupled sex with shame and, um, and I, it's not, not it's not a great place to be. Do you have any advice for how I can fix this for myself? But also like, how do I raise a sexually healthy daughter? And, Mm -hmm. and like these toddlers are always, you know, a lot of them touch themselves. So like, how do you handle masturbation? I mean, they're all going to touch themselves. They do it to soothe themselves. They're not doing it because they're getting like, woohoo, I want to have sex. And so what I would say, what I would, you know, recommend and what I said to my own kids is, listen, I know that feels great. And it's a part of your body that you should love and celebrate, but it is also your private part. So that means that when you touch it or play with it, it's got to be in private. You know, you can't do it when company's over. You can't do it at your, you know, place group. You you Mm got to do it when you're in private. And, you know, they would say, okay, mommy, I'm going in my room now to play with myself. And they close the door and, you know, go do it. And that was fine. So, um, but, but I wrote a book called Talking to Your Kids About Sex, which really takes you through conversation starters and what needs to be covered at every phase of development. But the main thing is that you want to be their primary source of information and not holding their sexuality in shame, just like kids or babies are born pure love. They're also born sexual beings, not ready to have sex, but sensual sexual beings. And the best thing you can do for your marriage and for them is to get over those inhibitions that so many of us were raised with. And there are lots of ways to do that. Actually, I'm working on the proposal for my next book, which is Quantum Sex. But, um, but, this, but one of the best ways of addressing the stories that you have about sex is to make a list of everything that, you know, you pick the title, a nice girl, a respectable woman, a good person, whatever it is, would and wouldn't do sexually, especially wouldn't do you know, and, and stories about sex. So if I, you know, have a want, want sex, I'm a slut, you know, or that oral sex is dirty, whatever it is, masturbation is evil. Uh, whatever those stories were that you, that you kind of carry with you or, or even not even that you carry with you, that you were told overtly or indirectly growing up. And then in the next column, you write where that came from. You know, oh, that came when my Aunt Mary caught me masturbating and slapped my hand away and said that that made me a slut. Or that came when, you know, the sister in my Catholic school told us, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so you you write it in that in the second column. And then you ground yourself, you open your heart, you move into home frequency, and you look at the list and you say, okay, which ones as the woman I am now? the married woman to a man I love who has these children who, you know, really wants to live in love and light, which ones of these do I really still believe in? And some of them might still be true for you and that's okay. But then what starts to happen is the ones you want to release. The next time you start to have that thought, you think, Oh yeah, that's just sister Mary Margaret from Catholic school. I don't (laughs) believe in that anymore. And you start to separate yourself from your beliefs. And that's the first step in changing that. 
That's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Berman. We really, really appreciate it. Sure, it was fun it. talking, you guys. Okay, everybody, don't forget to subscribe. Go to iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms or go on your iPhone. Find that podcast app and then just type in Atomic Moms and press search and then press subscribe and then press the five-star review. You're amazing. Okay, until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. Atomic Moms.